I'm trying to. I'm trying to do something real quick. I'm trying to do something real quick. I made a FOMOSA. So just orange juice and uh, fizzy water. But we also got de-alcoholized wine this last weekend. Oh, we used to, when you were a kid, like on Thanksgiving and Christmas, did your parents get you the bottle of the sparkling apple cider that looked like a champagne bottle so you could pop it? Of course. It? Of course. Have you had that any time recently? No, not since I was like nine years old. I can't, I think like somebody had it at a house party uh, that like kids were also at or something. God damn it. Keep overflowing this. Um, I had put too much orange juice in at first, so now I'm needing to fill it with fizzy water. See, you start, that's, that's how you know that you didn't make it right. Because if you're making a mimosa for real, you start with the, you start with the champagne and then you try to get as close to just a drop and a half of orange juice in there that you can but sometimes <laughs> it's like it ends up being like two or three drops but you can you you can never do too little orange juice in a mimosa yeah well i anyways the that cider stuff so much sugar it is so sweet. oh yeah i can i can imagine it's probably just a stomach ache <laughs> yeah 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 it was horrible but yeah we you know because we had the hurricane coming this last weekend so we went to get like a bunch of drinks and food and stuff um just because we we're like uh we knew that we were going to just be on kind of the outer edges anyways mm -hmm. like just get rain and humidity and just in case a mudslide took out the power poles, you wanted to be ready. <laughs> we don't have any hills around us, so we would have been fine. Uh, but yeah, so we got a bunch of like drinks and stuff, and then we saw um, some de-alcoholized uh, rosé. And we like the non-alcoholic beer, like that, uh, what's it called? Uh, athletic Brewing. And... It's it's like really I've said it before, but it's a top three beer for me. Okay, um, and so we thought, you know, would like to try because I don't know, you don't need alcohol, right? So we we got the the dealcoholized wine, and it is just grape juice like doesn't even have the kind of bitterness of wine or anything yeah you need you kind of need the taste of the, <laughs> the fermented like uh sharpness to it don't you and the alcohol is the flavor well the alcohol isn't the flavor of wine unless you're drinking lucky duck <laughs> like you know it is it's like all the additional stuff that gets broken down that's you know there's tannins in there oh, okay you yeah, know tannins but rosé is not a top choice wine anyways for for me so uh you know i was expecting it to be how, how way can more it be sweet. how can it be hot enough outside in california for you to need, need a nice chilling glass of rosé it gets warm here no it doesn't it was so humid during the hurricane you could smell it uh -huh. i haven't I haven't dealt with that humidity since I lived in Houston walking to work through, like, we lived on uh, 
I said Alameda, Alameda. And then I walked across the park, uh, maybe Herman Park. I can't remember the name of it to my work. And that would flood. It was, I felt like I was in Vietnam whenever is, is I was that, Is that there. around Buffalo Bayou? No, it's farther south than that. It's near the medical district. It all floods. But, I think we've talked about why Houston floods on this podcast before. Well, you want regulation? <laughs> no, it's it's the dams. The Texas dam infrastructure. It's all a <sighs> bunch of 100, 100 plus year old dams that have not been remediated in any kind of way, shape, or form because the budget for actually monitoring them and knowing which ones need work is slashed to nothing so they are like try to look at maybe a tenth of one percent of the dams every year <laughs> like yeah we, we i mean we got a sample we <laughs> i think okay so it it's gotten up to like i mean i would say it's approached 90 degrees here no way yeah <laughs> so get out of town it gets real hot um like for the today, low like for the low you guys almost got no no for a that's, low? that's for the high that's for like maybe 30 minutes during the day uh-huh uh-huh but we because of you know the the hurricane that came through hurricane, the hurricane that came through hurricane. Um, it's it's hovering around today the high is 75 uh-huh so you know we're we're managing. What's <laughs> never ending to find the beginning that came before everything. Like kids with decoders discover the wonder in the ordinary. takes me a minute to do these conversions to your archaic temperature gauge celsius i use celsius do you know celsius sure i'll just i'll just tell you in celsius it's easier to say zero than 32 right uh it is easier yes uh it's an easier concept to understand the when i was a kid uh they had stopped telling us that we were going to change to the metric system, but I still held on to that belief. <laughs> so in my car on the thermostat, I made it Celsius, um, you know, just because I wanted to understand Celsius. I figured going into the science field, what better way to live in scientific, uh, what is it? What is it, SI? Scientific instrument? In, I can't annotation? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what it is. The SI units. Uh, I just started living that way. So that's my story. 
You should have just gone into like the Department of Transportation Engineering because like TxDOT and I think a lot of the other DOTs around the country for all of their plans for like new highways and stuff, uh, it's the, they use metric. Really? They're laying everything out, yeah. <laughs> we did Why? a bunch of retaining walls one time for a big TxDOT project and had to do all of the plans in metric. Do all the all of the quantities and metric areas, all that everything was metric, which was cool. That- like it took a minute because, you know, all of our AutoCAD and stuff that we were using, we had all known feet and inches or actually we used tenths of feet, which is another weird. <laughs> we, we made feet base 10. <laughs> <laughs> Smart. Um, but yeah, so when you switch to the metric, it's just so easy, like. When we were having to just like pull off giant areas so that you would know like the quantity of block and things to buy for retaining walls, it's like everything's so easy. It's all zeros. It's like the easiest way of figuring anything out ever. What is the reason behind that? Because America has no more industry, so you were needing to buy these things from like Canada or no, Mexico the stuff or that Europe? we were that we were specking was made in Texas. Like the mm. retaining wall structures and stuff. It's just like their convention. I think it's easier for all things when it comes to like measuring concrete and all that type of stuff. Especially when you have extremely large projects. I'm guessing it's just easier to lay it out metric. Yeah, I mean, it is easier. Those conversions. What What's your favorite metric conversion? I don't know. Oh. What do you mean, like feet to meters? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The, the, I, I think the most confusing one that people have is that, oh, a meter's about a yard. It's like, I guess about is doing some work. <laughs> it's, it is about a yard, but if once you get to two meters and two yards, yeah, drastically yeah. different. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I. Yeah, I guy always, two uh, yards tall, might might have a might have a sports career. I don't know, two meters. Yeah. Yeah, seriously, I'm over two yards tall. I'm 185 centimeters. <laughs> Do that math. That's half a ruler still that I'm <laughs> under a. Two meters. <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta be what six seven to be two meters, six seven and change, six yeah. six and a quarter, something like that. I'm yeah, not good at insane. doing these imperial metric conversions in my head. I don't know. I don't even. I used to have like the easy converter for both inches to meter to centimeters and feet to meters and just in my head like you knew the to the fifth decimal place so you could just type it real fast and i don't mm-hmm. lost lost to the sands of time i cannot do that anymore well you don't need same it. with my same with my ability to speak even a little bit of conversational spanish totally you've gone picked up french yeah comment allez-vous <laughs> so uh i guess what i'm saying is you just need to move out here yeah, yeah, I'll pick the Spanish back up again. I mean, doesn't hurt. Uh, except I, I run into the Jake situation all the time. I believe Jake and TC have spoken about 
being like, do I use Spanish when I'm ordering something or no? <laughs> no, you, when you do it, you have to do it like Nikki's dad, where you uh, say the English word followed by the Spanish word. Okay. <laughs> like, like taco, taco. Yeah, yeah I don't know. <laughs> Because we have like no, a lot like, of like you know, and you you're asking for cheese, you know, enchiladas. You know, queso mm. enchiladas. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> you're not trying. You're trying to be helpful, but it comes off as only condescending. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing that uh, I fear, which is I'm sure is the same fear anybody else shares. That's white. That. Well, uh, the only way to do it is you just you just like if the menu is predominantly spanish which a lot of restaurants are around here i'll order in whatever the menu says yeah me too you know so i'm not gonna say bean and cheese tacos if that's not what the menu if like the menu says it in spanish then i'll say it in spanish that's sort of my guide but if i do if i ever do i'm sticking with one i'm not commingling or you doing doing the dub, double down of doing English and Spanish. Yeah, but then they ask you a question, and you're like, "What?" And then they they like roll their eyes and switch to English. <laughs> well, I think the other thing is, uh, I am a stickler for pronunciation, you know, mm-hmm. but like I I I don't want to pronounce it with like some kind of affects that would almost make it seem like I'm doing some sort of stereotypical impersonation. Right. So, but I also don't want to then intentionally mispronounce it like I'm some ignorant American who doesn't even know like how to pronounce the correct vowel. Is this Quizo? Yeah. So, so there's like a fine line of like, I don't want to put too much zest on it. Right. (laughs) Yeah, there's, you know, that I always uh, come into this issue uh, at Japanese restaurants because I can I can order in Japanese, no problem, as long as I know what it is I'm yeah. trying to order. I can't I can't describe to you a lot of the times what I'm looking for, but I can order, especially off a menu, um, and we'll go to places together, and we'll go like, especially around here, places will speak in Japanese to Miho and then speak in English to me. Uh-huh. But if she Miho's, can't translate for you. Well, I appreciate that because it is nice to not like, I, require, I like that they assume you know, that you it. just like purchased a woman from Japan and you don't know the language <laughs> and they're like, oh, I guess, I mean, she's not going to be able to tell them what I said. <laughs> you just brought her on a date. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, You've seen me and Miho in a restaurant now at yeah. this point. We don't look like we've known each other for 12 years, I don't think. Uh, you, you, know. you guys you guys have your... You, you could tell that you've intimately known each other for a while. I mean, you but sit, if you're you sit a next waiter, to each other. <laughs> yeah, we prefer to sit next to each other instead of across from each other. It's harder to hear. I don't know. Mm. Something about wearing headphones my entire life has uh, <laughs> caused restaurants to be difficult to hear things in. But... The it's always weird for me because Miho, if she's rattling off like some stuff and then I, I think of something I want to order, I then 
turn, do I say it in Japanese? Just because, you know, the person listening, it, it can take you a second sometimes, a little bit, to switch mm-hmm. languages listening-wise. Right, right. And so then that's a that's an internal battle. That's my, you know, God gives his hardest battles to his strongest yeah, warriors. Yeah, and is there, yeah, is, are there different um, accents in Japanese, like depending on oh. the region of the country? So that is something that is so fascinating with Japanese. I think in Japanese people would describe it as an accent, but I swear to God they're using different letters to spell the words. <laughs> it is and and I'm and I'm not like it's not me feeling that way when they do like subtitles on TV shows if they're going to another place where people speak a different dialect. It's spelled out it's a word that like tokyo uh japanese people are like what like it's it's not even like you can attune your ear to hear it it's a different language so because like the accent they they spell the accent phonetically (laughs) i don't know what it is and it's not like a it's not you know how you can kind of spell accents a little bit like gonna or something like that yeah 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 it's not even that and i don't know if it's if it came from that and then they just decided to like well we'll spell this the way they're actually pronouncing it i don't know if it's like you know latin turning into italian Mm -hmm. it is it is like a totally different word it's like i and i can't do it uh because i don't know i only know like the you know uh proper japanese like the you know what would be the dictionary definitions of stuff. I don't know. But the biggest one, especially people who watch anime, uh, like I'm saying the biggest one as far as uh, American people would recognize would be Kansai, uh, Kansai Bin, which is like the South. It's like the Osaka region. So they have a different way of speaking, but it's, it's funny because it started to meld into any bit of entertainment in especially Tokyo because like Osaka and that region is where like all the comedians and entertainers come from for some reason. It's, it's a way more like, uh, like speak your mind kind of society compared to Tokyo. Like, so people are making jokes at each other's expense and everything. So it's just kind of like, I don't know, seems like a natural thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's that's a weird one. Because then if it's a bunch of Osakan comedians all talking to each other, like they'll put, I, I can tell what they're literally saying is not what the subtitle kind of thing is that they're putting. <laughs> but I can understand like the subtitle thing. But I'm like, they just said that in a very like weird <laughs> way, right? Yeah, yeah. I get maybe the closest analog to something like that would be like Creole or even yeah. like the more bastardized version of Creole that people speak down in Louisiana that's just kind of English mixed in with Creole. Yeah, it's I mean that's the closest comparison that I can feel um because they do have different ways of actually spelling words. Mm-hmm. Um you know. So that's yeah, it's it's real weird though. I mean I've described this before but like tokyo as much as i love tokyo it feels like a big city it feels kind of like new york can feel yeah um definitely different vibe but everything feels kind of the same 
when we went to Osaka, I was like, oh, now I'm in Asia. Like, <laughs> it like felt, I don't know, New, uh, Tokyo felt like a global city and Osaka felt like a continental city. Like Dallas and Fort Worth. Yeah. Like you hang out in Dallas, you're just in any city. Then you go to Fort Worth, you're like, ah, now I'm in Texas. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, you have to go to San Antonio to really be in Texas because you're like, ah, now, now I get it. There's an yeah, but is San Antonio a city? I don't know if we would call it that. It's a nice town. They got a, they got a basketball team. Unfortunately. I got asked this morning from the power department person. Uh, I was confirming my phone number. I said 817. She was like, what area code is that? And I begrudgingly had to say Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. You could have just said Worth. Tarrant County. <laughs> Tarrant County, Texas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. And then, well, I said Fort Worth, and then I could have said accidentally Arlington. said, because that's where I'm from, which I'm not from mm, Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to get it. My dad was the person who got me the phone in the first place, and I've just kept the same phone number. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful phone number. I, I highly recommend you to look at it on a number pad because once you get to the last seven digits it's just like a it's like a nice kind of shape okay so you need to you need to do that all right (laughs) i'll get i'll get right on that that the haptics of your phone number i swear it's like would that be the way to describe that the haptics of your phone number (laughs) It's like those those locks for phones, but you like draw the shape, yeah, yeah, the pattern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what my phone number is <laughs> after the area code. That's really cool. Have you seen on the iPhone accessibility for blind people stuff where you can uh, create a shape like that as the way to because it like matches your you know pin code to unlock your phone. Um, but since you know blind people can't as easily see that d- pad come up and touch it right uh you can have that whatever the action of making that shape is assigned to a word that your voice says and so that whenever you say that the screen will think that that shape has been drawn on the surface of the screen and will unlock your phone no i haven't seen that um but that's have you used it i haven't i haven't used it i i don't i don't know if it's on my phone's pretty old. I'm going on year, shoot, six on this guy. No way an iPhone's made it that long. You're lying. I've only had three iPhones. The first <laughs> one, I had the very the first one. I got the uh, the six, and then this is the second version of the X one. Do you not drop your phone ever? No, I drop it all the time. I just put a case on it like a smart person. I don't even have a screen cover or anything. I've never cracked a screen. I drop Nikki's it replacing it all the time. No, nope. and she drops hers all the time too. She's never had a cracked screen or anything either. Replacing hers as well. But also, like it's not that much for the Apple Care, so that you also have the coverage if it does get it, and they just give you a brand new phone, like. It's cheaper than a than those really expensive OtterBox cases to just pay for the Apple Care plan. 
Yeah, I forgot about OtterBox. Do they still make cases? Yeah, I think so. I know I had like the waterproof one on my phone back in college. But, <clears throat> you know, I, I've i gone, I used to have iPhones. I used to be a sheeple uh, back when I lived in Houston. And then we moved to Japan and I didn't need a phone so I got like a prepaid flip phone just for emergencies. I had mm. like 10, 10 minutes on it, like maximum the whole time I lived in Japan. Just for emergency calls. Yeah, um, because everybody there uses an app called Line to communicate. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, like that's why uh, like if you look at a Japanese website, it's so poorly designed how it looks like it's three columns of text kind of because uh, internet there, people started using the internet on their phones as opposed to like a desktop. So everything's designed to work on a phone um, and then they ported it over to computers much more. So like everybody's used to using the internet uh, in Japan for communication. So I just had like a pocket Wi-Fi thing I could turn on and then I would use an iPod to communicate for the two years I lived there. So I never had a phone call on my iPod because I didn't even have a earpiece speak. You know, you can't, it doesn't work like a phone. You were off the grid. Yeah, it felt like it, especially whenever I'd be in the subway. <laughs> I'd lose... <laughs> Lose the ability to listen to anything. <laughs> well, the, the, the subways don't have Wi-Fi on the trains. They started putting Wi-Fi in, but it was like station dependent. I think oh, okay. not. Uh oh. What you doing, Chibi? I hear a dog's tail hitting the floor. He's very excited. I think he's dreaming. Chibi. He's- to let him dream. Just let him well, dream. The other day, he did have like a what we think might have been a small seizure. Oh, a, a little sleep seizure? He always gets them when he's asleep, but the other day, he, and this is, you know, this is, uh, whatever, having a dog. He like jumped up on the counter, so we got on to him, and then he was like kind of moping over on the side, and then he came up and tried to get it like tried to walk over me to get to Miho, but we were still eating. Mm-hmm. And so I like kind of stopped him because sometimes they'll sit right in between us and then they'll be like, well, while I'm here, <laughs> this prosciutto is not going to eat itself. And uh, so I like stopped him from going and then he like got real heavy on me. Like, like, you know, just yeah. put a ton of weight on me, which is what he does before he has a seizure. So then uh, we we're like, whoa. So we like moved him into the kitchen and he was like kind of shaking, but more in like a nervous shaking way. So we don't know if he like felt like he was getting in trouble again or having a seizure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, but I just care about my pets. That's why. <laughs> That's why you should get cats. So then you don't have to care about them at all. <laughs> Man, but don't cats get diabetes now? I Maybe. I've heard that people need to give insulin shots to their cats, which seems... We have like such a beating. we have special food for them. So, because I generally a bunch of pet food is crap for them anyway. But so we have like a special food because now that they're getting older, we got to keep an eye on their weight. But you know, 
that's just a vet playing on my heartstrings to make me pay extra money for fancy food, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I gotta get, I gotta get a uh, special food for. But then I also believe in the capitalist machine that would do a really snazzy marketing campaign for some pet food to make me think that, oh yeah, this is what wolves used to eat. This is what they need. And it's really just like a bunch of like sugar and terrible stuff put into kibble because it's whatever the cheapest thing we could make kibble out of. And then they sell it to me and they're making more of a profit than the guy that's trying to make the good food, but the good food's more expensive. So it's a uh, it's a whole capitalist nightmare. I don't know what to do. Do I buy do I buy the the food that's obviously a con by the vet, or do do I buy the food that's obviously a capitalist invention to tr- to try to sell me crap for for them having no cost on their end? Um, probably the latter because the free market provides much like it did in early America. Look at that. <laughs> I mean, it did provide. I mean, you just you pull up on the shore, and just a people, just a bunch of people came out, and they were like, "Yeah, put me in the boat." Yeah, yeah, um, I'll they... be happy to go back to to Europe. Happy, put put <laughs> me put me in a put me in a manor house. I'll carry around a tea kettle. Don't mind that at all. Man, I don't. I understand. Uh, starvation being a real thing is kind of difficult, but it is hard to imagine um, leaving Europe and coming to America and then feeling like you can't work with the Native Americans here. Like you can't be like, well, they'll help us out. Like I'll just live with them. (laughs) Feeling like you need to set up your own venture on something. Like you don't know the kind of crops to put in the ground. You don't, you know? Yeah. But you're gonna need you're gonna need a cobbler to help you mend your shoes. So we got to get that set up. That's like one of the first things we do when we get to the new world. We set up the cobbler station. Is that for real? Yeah. <laughs> like there the, the were the important things that you need to, you knew from like livelihood that you had, and in, in civilization that you knew that you were gonna need when you got to the wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess they're. We still are going to need to wear the same clothes we wore in the city. Like, why would we change to wilderness clothing? That'd be weird. Their shoes with one buckle on them. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna need a hat guy. Who's gonna be the guy that's making our hats? You know, they every time you like look at a Puritan picture and you see the buckle on the hat, you're like, oh, what a fancy design. But you have to imagine those hats were like. One really size fits bad all looking. Hats. One size so fits you just all. Had to the put belt, a belt was to on the cinch top. it. <laughs> like it look, it had to look like a chef's hat most of the time, right? Yeah, yeah, all puffed up. Yeah, <laughs> especially for kids, you know. Ugh, Those things must have been so hot. I just can't imagine. Dude, jeans when we were kids were hot. Oh yeah, like they they like came so starched. Like you would buy the new pair of Wranglers from Walmart, your mom would get you that you're gonna have to wear for the next four years, and uh, you know she she'd buy them like four inches too long, and so you'd start cuffing them, and then by the end she'd have had to let out the bottom of the seam to give you an extra inch, you know, because you grew. Um, but yeah, those would come, it almost like they were like molded plastic. <laughs> like that's how <laughs> that's how heavy the starching was on the jeans. <laughs> you couldn't even like walk. 
My, I don't know if they did that to my clothes when I was a kid. I don't know. I can't remember what I wore. Well, I went to private school for first grade and half of second grade. But yeah, I, I don't know. We didn't really do that. Nef- no starching in the jeans. Because my, when my parents were moving, when my dad was finishing up law school in Waco, it was between Grand Prairie or uh, Mesquite. Yeah. And my my mom said, I'm not raising a goat roper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're moving to Grand Prairie. <laughs> so, I don't know. She was from Oklahoma, too. So, yeah, <clears throat> she didn't really understand how us Texans lived. Right, right, right. And my dad from Florida, he was also a transplant. Originally from New York. Um, anyways, so where did we leave off? We left off with the Puritans and the Congregationalists. That's correct. Um, so I guess the thing to uh, drive home at the beginning is the the type of Christians that were coming to America, the type of people were driven by three main uh, motivations as far as um, uh, Matt Chrisman is concerned. Um Makes sense to me, though. Desperation, because as we spoke about last time, in England uh, and then in Europe, there were no more common lands for peasants. Feudalism had been destroyed and capitalism was now being forced on everybody, which meant that if you failed in the market, you were on your own for the first time in a very real sense as far as your complete livelihood. There's no more social bond to anything. So you were desperate for a reason to get away from it. Or you didn't want to see, um, you know, capitalism. Capitalism had made you desperate. There was greed. Um, so that's, you know, all the businesses that were set up and everything, any wealthy person coming over. And then you had fanatics, the Puritan strain of Calvinism that concentrated in New England, Um, And they were the people that splintered off. You had the Congregationalists splinter off. And you had these tons of different denominations forming uh, very early on in Christianity in America. Yeah, they had to flee all the wokeism. Everybody was getting (laughs) all woke. They're like, "Uh uh-uh, not going to raise my kids in a woke land. They were just against the patriarchy. That's why they were, you know, the capitalist patriarchy developing in Europe. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a progressive movement. They were they were looking they were looking for a more egalitarian way of life. <laughs> I mean, kind of. <laughs> That's they were looking for egalitarian ways of life, but they could only develop things in the market structure yeah. that they had come from. Um once you so uh there's this little thing in American history called the revolution. And, uh, as we spoke about last time, you had like a lot of the, uh, forebears of the revolution, Thomas Jefferson, people like that, who are Unitarians mm-hmm. who believed in the moral structure of Christianity. I'm sure we have a Unitarian listening who's like, that's not what Unitarianism is, but that's as far as I can understand it. Um, it is, it is, if you look at it in an abstract view, it is a very convenient 
denomination uh, to adhere to from a political leadership standpoint. Right, right. So, like, if you're thinking that religion is important as a motivational piece that can move populations to do things en masse, and I'm going to need also to have a connection with religion through this Christianity lens in order to legitimize my position in, of leadership, um, what is the one that provides me the most maneuverability? <laughs> yes. And so everyone can look at me and be like, you know, he's a good man. And there can be like a consensus amongst multiple groups of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you had like this kind of liberal awakening in America, right? That, right. That people were individuals operating in this society and market and everything. And so Unitarianism gives you broad latitudes to work with all sorts of people. Um, as far as your moral compass <laughs> is concerned. Mm. Um, so during the Second Great Awakening, uh, which happens a few years after in the 1820s and 1830s, that's when we start seeing like an explosion in, in religiosity again in America. Um, it's it. The Second Great Awakening is like what made America a Christian religious nation. It, the number of ministers in the country rose from, in the 1770s, you had 2,000 ministers. By 1845, you had 40,000. Yeah. And by 1845, I mean, the country was half of the country as it is today, right? Yeah. Well, and it, in my thinking about some of these numbers... If capitalism is sort of this infancy bastardization of capitalism right now or in early America, it's not fully established, then what jobs really are there for a lot of people? <laughs> you know, yeah. what are yeah. what are the, like all the middle class jobs that are out there? Like if you're not going to be the person who's the cobbler fixing everybody's shoes or the hat maker, like what are the jobs? Like maybe you take care of the horses. Um, but. People are coming here in droves now for the opportunity of setting up a world in their own image, just like mm -hmm. God created the world in his image. Um, and so one of the I, I would think one of the like primary good jobs that you would want as a male in this society would be preacher, like pastor, like that person's probably high up in the town in whatever small, if you're like on a frontier town or you're moving west or whatever, you are the person who's establishing that that new town. Um, or if you are staying on in the colonial area or near the east coast, that is a huge uh, political player of power structure. If you can get in that preacher game, even if you're in one of the uh, offshoot denominations that are off in the, in the shadows, you can still wield influence. It's like yeah. one of the few areas where you can do that. Um, so it's in one way, it's not surprising that this huge influx happens. Cause I would think that at, especially if you're buying into like American ideals at this point of self-made man and individualism, what better job could there be uh, than preacher? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, the <clears throat> the story of American Christianity is the story of developing, like, your own self-interest, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and that you can see it as uh, part and parcel with, like, this next part of our story, which is, like, the the north and west part of New York State, where most of the religious revivals and then spinoffs of denominations that we know today occurred at, in this area. The Those lands, and especially West New York State, they were given to soldiers after the Revolutionary War as payment. Um, and most of the soldiers in the in the economy that resulted from the Revolutionary War, like, you know, we remember the Articles of Confederation where it's like mayhem in the country. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't, that was the time when like, they were like, yeah, states, you decide your money. It's like each state had its own currency. Yeah, yeah you and had everything. different dollars for every every place. And so the, the soldiers sold it so that they could actually have some income. Uh, and the people that ended up moving into these lands were trying to escape the the capitalist formation that was occurring in the cities. They were trying to go as far as they could from the advanced selfish pursuits that were occurring in places like New York City or whatever. But uh, at the in the early um, 1800s, the first big public infrastructure project, the Erie Canal, mm-hmm. really destroyed that notion that you can escape capitalism in this country. It connected all of those people that tried to flee with the city. It was like the, you know, three, what, 360 miles or something between New York City and the Erie, Lake Erie. It's been a while since I've watched anything on the Erie Canal, but that sounds right. (laughs) And, but all of like this region of the country is where all these political, or I'm sorry, uh, religious revivals occurred. This, So many religious revivals occurred in this region that it became known as the Burned Over District mm-hmm. because any wave of political fire that burned through there torched uh, any further like enthusiasm afterwards for religion if you weren't caught up in any of these new religions. This is where, um, you know... Uh, What's his name? Joseph God. Smith. Joseph Smith. Thank you. <laughs> Not John. It's where Joseph Moroni Smith. shows up, you know? Yeah, this is this is where you get the Latter-day Saints. This is where you get um, the Seventh-day Adventists that began as Millerites. It was a sect around a farmer named William Miller who looked through the Bible, determined mathematically that the world was going to end in four years, got all his believers together. They sold all of their property went up on the hill to wait for Jesus to come and uh, Jesus did not come back. So they had to walk back down the hill with nothing in their possession anymore. Um, Interestingly enough, turns into the seventh day Adventists. Um, This is now called the great disappointment. And they just realized, Oh, the math was wrong. It's a few more years in the future. This is also where you get the spinoff of the Branch Davidians. Mm-hmm. They're a Seventh-day Adventist group. Um, you get Jehovah's Witnesses developing there, um, which is like a scholastic approach to biblical literalism. 
you get Quakers developing uh, much earlier than that, but you get, it's essentially trying, uh, what I'm trying to say is you get all of these different groups of people. Yeah, also also Mennonites and Amish too, and they move over into like Pennsylvania and stuff after they get, after that area gets pushed out. Yeah, yeah, the Mennonites developed, as we spoke weeks ago, of the Anabaptists, um, the people who believed you needed to be, um, I believe it's the Anabaptist, you need to be yeah. baptized uh, you need to choose to be baptized, and they took over like cities in Europe during uh, before during the Reformation, and the Catholics got them though. They well, they also formed together like communal situations, like or communal societies where everything was shared. Um, they now are like totally politically. Um, neutral because it didn't go so good last time to go against political powers. <laughs> yeah. Our God so is you, not political. <laughs> right. Um, you get American evangelicals during this time. You get Methodists occurring. Methodists mm-hmm. occurred in the Anglican church. It began there. Yeah. Um, but they came to the U.S. They came to the colonies. And... <clears throat> uh, you had this like main leader in the Methodist church, Francis Asbury. Um, They had 1,160 members served by 10 preachers in Maryland, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, and Virginia in 1771. By the time he died in 1816, they had 214,000 followers in American Methodism because they took up the, the concept of uh, circuit riders where you would have, one preacher, but his job was to travel around and try to preach and bring other people into mm-hmm. your belief instead of building one city where now all everyone the has to come to my in. church far and yeah, wide. Exactly. They'll all just make the pilgrimage to my church. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's super fascinating how all of these sorts of things develop um, that it's, it's like expanding in the U.S. and it goes hand in hand with uh, capitalism, which goes hand in hand with uh, slavery. Yeah, it's slavery, but then also at this time is the uh, beginning of the annihilation of the native peoples. Yeah. Um, which, whereas initially when Columbus first saw people in Hispaniola and he was like, well, there's no other commodities, I'll offer the people as the commodity. Um the idea was we'll take them all back. We'll take them back over to Europe and they'll be our new free labor to do all the cool stuff and wait on us hand and foot. Um, it's only after that that the idea spreads of moving the people from Africa to America to do the free labor because we couldn't figure out a way to really tame the Indians. It was too hard to tame these wild savages to do the labor that we needed to do. So we need to... Find a find a people from somewhere else and then just totally break them over a long journey <laughs> so that they will be completely subservient and willing to do the things because they're no longer even close to where they came from. They, they can't even think of escape. Escape what? You're going to go swim back 3,000 miles the other direction? Like, yeah. The, the attempt of, uh, of turning uh, the natives into this... Uh, free labor force didn't work just because they it was their backyard it was their home court like there wasn't a way to wrangle them up and prevent them from all just running away which made them 
again, pastors from all up and down the both the Protest, the Protestant spectrum, uh, using the language of the Old Testament with uh, from Solomon and David's battles and Saul before him, and then the battles of Joshua and Caleb, uh, where basically the rhetoric is to dehumanize the opponent, make them seem that they are nothing but uh, the spawn of evil, um, compare them to beasts, and and by in doing so, make it seem as if they are completely irredeemable. There's not even a... You, sh- you shouldn't even make the effort. <laughs> Be- so the, the best thing you could do for them is to just kill them. Like, that's, that's, that's the mercy right there. Uh, to free them from these, these demons that are possessing them and causing them to be savages. Uh, and you have to, in order to get people to do that en masse for an entire continent the size of North America, <laughs> you have to have a religious justification that everyone buys into. And everyone just sees those, those other human beings as not human beings because they said similar stuff in the Old Testament and we're living this, re, we're doing this reimagining of coming out of Egypt into the promised land. And so we get to do a lot of the same stuff that's in the Old Testament to these to these people yeah it's the as we spoke about last time like that justification that backwards logic uh working it back into your religion is like feels like such an american kind of trait you know um we see it today especially but the way that it comes back around with the people who came here were fleeing capitalism uh destroying social ties in europe and then using it to then completely rip (laughs) the world apart of its own social ties Mm -hmm. well and uh, but and then again like when we've talked about in the global warming episode and things like that like i you also have to think about just anyone's concept of what like the the whole world was like as a as a thing <laughs> like yeah. I, I don't even know if anyone thought that big or very few people thought that big yeah at that time like it's 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 a modern thing for us to have always have this weird large perspective of like the whole globe the economy of the planet <laughs> like that's like a weird thing that we're just always tuned into but it, because we have these resources so easily at our hand to always be tuned into it, um, everyone like I, this whole thing is moving as like a there. There is one direction of this machine, but I don't oh, yeah. know how many people that are moving the pieces of the machine are very aware that the machine exists. I mean, I would say that they're not. Yeah, you know, um, if you just imagine the the day to day lives or the perspective you know like even people who signed something like the declaration of independence like they're kind of like oh we're just gonna be killed for this but maybe this will kind of spawn something like you don't envision that things are going to end up working out in your favor uh, in whatever context you imagine that to be now 
think about the people who aren't in power, like what their mm-hmm. day-to-day lives are. Um, you know, you you had like a smaller number of people like actually fighting in the revolution, whereas you had other people who were just like, can I just not be like kill? Can I please just farm this stuff and like be let alone? Um, you know, so it's the understandings of people at the time is something to keep in mind and very hard to do like whenever we're today talking through these sorts of things. Yeah. And if you stumble upon a continent that has not been developed yet, it has indigenous people, it has indigenous uh, flora and fauna. It does that have like civilization. They have actual very advanced developed social networks that have go back 10,000 years. Um, it's still, when they get there, all they can do, is, they can't even fathom the amount of resources. Like, these are limitless resources. So to even think of like, uh, oh, we better be stewards of this. <laughs> like, when when you keep thinking, you're as, as you're cutting west, you keep thinking, is this the edge? Oh, no. We just hit a mountain range. Well, maybe once we get over these mountains, it's that'll be the it, that'll be the coast. And then you keep going, and it's like another two thousand miles, and you still haven't gotten to the coast. Like how the mindset must be, at least in these like first few generations, of just this is totally limitless resources. Of course, we must exploit these things. This is like it's like free energy. Like just you found it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, as you've mentioned plenty of times, like just coming up up to other humans and then just being like, oh, well, this they don't matter. Right. That's wild. Um, I don't have too much on like religion through the Revolutionary War or the Civil War because uh, I, I wanted to get to like modern times as quickly as possible. But I did definitely want to mention uh, the National Reform Association, founded in 1864. Okay. Are you familiar with them? I am not. Founded in 1864. The original NRA. Uh, yes. They uh, tried and have tried to this day to get an amendment in the Constitution to declare the U.S. a Christian nation. Okay. <laughs> they want the amendment to be, we the people uh would acknowledge Almighty God as the source of all authority and power and civil government, the Lord Jesus Christ as the ruler among nations, his revealed will as the supreme law of the land in order to constitute a Christian government. (laughs) Cool, cool. The revealed will of Jesus. Yeah. Who who gets to decide what that is? Well, probably them. I mean, he he revealed it to me last night in a dream. Yeah, <laughs> revealed I got it to this me hat, through this clock. Trust me. Yeah. Um. No, I think and, it's fine to kind of skip over, it. like, for for our purposes of like establishing this trend of religion. I think un- understanding sort of the underpinnings that had to be laid foundationally, one to establish slavery as an economy of the new world. And two, to then establish the manifest destiny concept of 
Yeah, and all of it's the land, all of it. <laughs> like, yeah. I, in fact, the people that are trying to oppose us to taking this land, uh, they're kind of instruments of Satan. So, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I'm. I mean, you want us to put like an instrument of Satan in in jail? You want us to try to like bring that person to like school to teach him how to read? No, I, I'm not going to do that. You just yeah. kill. You just kill that. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's wild. So understanding that that's the foundation for the country um you know and i haven't read howard zinn i tried looking up a few interviews of his to get some ideas but uh i just assume that's kind of his whole point that that is part of his his big point uh, but that that's like just the first part of uh, people's history of the united states is like getting into like oh yeah and but it, what it is is like he gives a lot of the written testimony of different native peoples going through that period of time. So it's like the, the written log of when like different people came together with different, um, Spanish conquerors and they, they were talking with natives and they were having like arguments about this is what we should do. And they were like, no, fuck you. We have swords and guns. <laughs> and then, and then them critiquing being like, yeah, I mean, but those are just tempting you to do bad things. If you got rid of your swords and guns, we could all live in peace and harmony. And then they're like, ha, you're just saying that cause you don't have guns. <laughs> so, you don't know how awesome it feels. Yeah. So he establishes all that type of stuff first and then into the slave trade. But then it, once you get past, um, that, that quickly shows how that morphs into like the labor movement. <laughs> so it, he like goes all the way from that, the initial um, interaction between the indigenous population of Hispaniola and Columbus to uh, the labor disputes of like the 1970s and 1980s. And then they've added stuff to it after that since then. Okay. Yeah. Is when, has he died? Is he alive? I I think Howard might have died. I think his son is still alive. His okay. son. His I, son does some stuff. Like his son is the one who narrates the audible versions of the books. Hmm. Um. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think Howard. I I feel like Howard Zinn was one of those deaths that happened recently that I remember, but it might have been during the pandemic when everyone was dying. So I don't know. Why were people dying during a pandemic? Because they got a vaccine. <laughs> so I looked up like an interview from him, but it was like in 2006 and it quickly turned into like, uh, what do you think people are failing to do to protest against Bush? And I was like, oh, <laughs> tired. <laughs> this is tired. This is played. <laughs> what are we going <laughs> to What are we gonna do? Go to Wall Street and set up some tents? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now give me Graber. <laughs> Very surprising death on Graber. Um, he got hit yeah. with the heart attack gun. Yep. Definitely did. So <clears throat> I blame that one on Hillary. I think Hillary got him. The hurricane that just came through? Uh, yeah. One in the same. You would think meteorologists would be smart enough to not name a hurricane Hillary or anything politically related just so I can actually look some information up on Twitter without needing to scroll through so many lunatics just with their bad memes. 
They should, they, that's why they should only do storms with male names. I don't like this convention of alternating years between male and female names or whatever. They oh, they do. alternate years? I thought they alternate storms. Oh, maybe they alternate storms. I don't know. No, they should be all male. That's the they, patriarchy I want to see. They did used to be all female, right? Yeah. And then yeah. they were like, that was, okay. How come yeah. only only disasters get named after females? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, that was that was the guys. Can we can we have can a we bark get fest? All of our, can we get our barks out now or hold our peace? Um, so as I spoke about uh, last time, capitalism, as it was put into hyperdrive in England, resulted in all of the as they were forming to be nations nations of Europe to compete against each other and force capitalism onto peasants. Mm-hmm. It did not go well uh, in on the continent because they had no vent to escape really, um, you know, internal issues. And Europe, at that point of development, was no longer able to be conquered by one nation, you know, save for Napoleon, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but I don't think he got all of it, right? No, and it was very short-lived. Yeah. Uh, is that because he was short as well? Is that a pun? <laughs> no, he got to go live in exile. What does that mean? What does live in exile mean? I've always wondered. It'd be too mean to kill you, but we just don't want to see you anymore. So you go and live on an island by yourself? There's people there, right? You can move to another city. I, I don't... The Napoleon Island is always like, portrayed as like a deserted island where just like one person on it with like a coconut tree or something you know yeah but i don't think that's the way it was i think it was like actually like a prison island oh well okay so the 300 years that followed the 30 years uh war so much conflict going on in europe uh you can read about it yourself a Good number of historians nowadays call the period of the uh, First World War and the Second World War the Second Thirty Years' War. It's, mm. it's you know, kind of historians like that kind of stuff whenever things yeah, line up like it that. Book, it bookends perfectly. Right. And you can just be um, like, ah, oh, we were just kind of, it was like a little down, there was like a little downtime. There's like a little downtime for 15 years in between. Yeah, but I mean, if you look at the original Thirty Years' War, too, there was it was not the whole of Europe. And I guess if you want to like years. say during that downtime, there was like a bunch of stuff going on in China and Japan, and they were doing other stuff that we weren't really paying much attention to in America. Right, a lot right. of gold getting changing hands and getting buried in different caves. Yeah, yeah. It's like the robot chicken episode of the little Hitler. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so the the thirty years the second thirty years war, World War Two, um, believe it or not, completely shreds Europe. Uh America untouched completely. Yeah. Um well, we like to even... play away games. We're we're really <laughs> we, that's our favorite game is away games. Our home stadium is we have these windows that they set up and they refuse to put these curtains down. Yeah, we just can't so play. We just don't see. Uh, like we only like to play friendly matches here, like just like practice games. We do like every once in a while we'll do a practice game. But 
anytime we're going to play a real game, we kind of want to go to your place. Right. We got the uh, planes to do it. Don't worry. We got the planes and the ships to get over to your place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We have an entire force in our military <laughs> that's designed just to land in your land. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, And they pride themselves, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, completely shreds Europe, including England. England was the dominant power up to that point. Emerging from World War II, America becomes the global hegemon. And having developed capitalism to the American extent, starts to export it um, like crazy because they want to fight against communism. Now, we have discussed labor things a very surface level here, so I'm not going to go into it too much because we're still talking about religion, but still. Um, the thing that they're, the, the language they're using to drive this capitalist urge within the country is the language of Christianity uh, because atheism is synonymous with communism uh, because they you know outlawed religion quote unquote mm-hmm. um the you know it's but it go it also goes back to constantinople it goes back to like the separation of the or- eastern orthodox church from the catholicism it goes back to like these these rogues have been against the Western traditions of, of Christianity for too long. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. So it's, I mean, that's like the thing, like the driving to it. Um, March 6th of 1946, Truman declared that the survival of the civilized world required Americans to fortify their spiritual strength through a renewal of religious faith. The as some people have described it, the spiritual industrial complex was something that was orchestrated from the top down in America. It was yeah. you no longer had a religious revival coming from the grassroots. This was like a boardroom decided decision that America is going to become a Christian place. It is not until 1954 that the phrase under God is added to the Pledge of Allegiance. It's not till 1956 that in God we trust is placed, uh, or at 1954, uh, in God we trust is in currency. Two years later, that became the official U.S. motto without a dissenting voice in the House or Senate. Mm-hmm. And it you, is, But you have to put yourself in the mindset. It's very similar to like post 9-11. Mm-hmm. Like everybody is real ginned up to do a bunch of protection stuff to be like, look, the world almost ended like twice in the last 30 years. <laughs> we and in order to like get everyone to chill for a second, we debuted that we have the power to actually destroy the planet. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, so we're thinking uh, maybe going forward. We should have the keys to the car. Uh, I think the only other people that might want the keys are these guys over here in these these Soviets, these these jerks that they 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 said they were our friends. But guess what? We had dinner with them the other night. Not a Bible in the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. So do you want them? I mean, we we used to be like we were 
talked about like we were going to take turns driving the car, but then I don't know, guys. Do you guys trust them driving the car on their turn? I don't think I trust them. They don't have a Bible. Well, they, you know, it was like the the Christian leaders and stuff were beating themselves up, siding with the the USSR in World War II because, you know, they believed that they were uh, science facing and and atheist and everything. The American Judeo Christian concept was a construct intended to reinforce the notion of a religious nation that was a model of tolerance and a force for good. And then the late 1930s, the anti-fascist, the Antifa, Antifa, Mm -hmm. left had combined with Protestant neo-Orthodoxy to emphasize the shared heritage of Christianity and Judaism to counter anti-Semitism. So that's where you get the design of you know, as Ben Shapiro uses this think like pretending like it's a Judeo Christian traditional values. <laughs> yeah, like it's a two thousand year old yeah, concept. Yeah. We've no, been doing this since Moses. It was in the nineteen thirties to fight against anti Semitism, which they paired with fascism. Um so they had to turn from anti fascist to anti communist in the fifties, uh well, you know, forties and fifties, like immediately because well, you know, go back one year and listen to our uh, episodes on the nuclear bombs. Like, they were not willing to allow the Soviets to, you know, uh, divvy up Japan. Yeah. So that's why they dropped the bomb. Um, sorry, Justin. <laughs> it's not the alert. only reason they dropped the bomb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bet you they don't um, talk about that in Oppenheimer. <laughs> I wonder if they even bring it up. Um, so the it, it for me seeing how the force of capitalism made like that that's one thing that I'm wondering at this point of American history. Is it? I mean, capitalism feels like a system that somebody's turned on the keys and it's just going. Yeah, yeah. It's a self-driving car. I don't know if in the 40s and 50s it necessarily felt runaway. I feel like it was, you know, the 70s and 80s that it really took off on its own. Um, As they say, like on Chapo quite often, that the system became self-aware in the 80s. Yeah, well, Um, and that's when you started having like actual the the boom bust parts of the economy really started... uh, influencing people in rapid in rapid ways yeah yeah but at this point in the 40s and 50s which was the driving force was it capitalism or communism i think it was uh everyone i think truman and eisenhower were both viewing the world only through the existential threat that they had lived through at the latter stage of their life by the deployment of the bomb to end World War II. I think, and so they calculated in a smart way, the way that we can get all of America behind us in one uniform voice to do something that might be questionable if they thought that the people over in the Soviet Union were actually like, you know, people with families and children and <laughs> right. like if you actually related yourself to them on a human level, um, what's what's the one mechanism that you can turn where you can get uh, masses of people to do 
horrible things without a conscience. <laughs> well, what's what's insane to me is like they use that Christian rhetoric and perspective to drive the American way and the American way is capitalist and the American capitalist way is individualist. It's so so fascinating that the drive for forming one base of support in the country is you get your own house, you get your own yard, and it alienated communities. Like you're no right. longer part of a community. You're your own king in your own kingdom, but you live in this nation as one voice of Christianity and capitalism, you know? Right, right. That and turn I, is so crazy. I think that is the thing that makes just when you strip everything away, the the revelation you have if you've been very religious for any point of your life is how crazy you feel. <laughs> like, yeah. You are constantly having to do these both sides gymnastics in your brain to justify things that you believe in uh, or that you think are right. And yet it's, it's, it's right for the right reasons, but we have to just endure having to do the bad things in order to get the, get the prize at the end. Like the, even the, the, the end justifies the means in the most pure sense of, of the, of the, of the phrase. So that, that is the, the troubling thing. But I think when you have this mass of humanity that all believes one way and then you tie into it the existential threat of any day now someone could drop a bomb on us and the whole the whole thing's over yeah um it's way easier to just buy to be like yeah let's do whatever to be safe i mean plus it's the right religious thing to do and i can feel morally right in my in in my position on this yeah i'm i'm happy it it kills both the things in my head that i'm worried about yeah i mean it, it Tying into that like fundamentalist kind of like the the apocalypse is coming yeah. <laughs> situation is like it goes so hand in hand so perfectly uh, with each other. But it's still, you know, as we were just speaking about like the people who don't have power, obviously they're just trying to live day to day. Um, and if you can satiate your worries by buying into these certain things, then it's a totally reasonable uh conclusion to draw i suppose mm-hmm. and but, but that's why looking, you have to have things that are like vietnam and that starts to create like the cracks in this monolith of people that come out of world war ii that are like i don't care what we have to do i don't care we're all we're all in this for survival basically <laughs> whatever yeah. we gotta all agree to to guarantee our survival i'll agree to it at this point after what we just went through um and then you have to have enough like failures of this uh extension of providence to the rest of the world by u.s the u.s being this superpower like bestowing (laughs) democracy and freedom amongst everyone (laughs) yeah um like you have to have enough failures and people coming home and being completely broken human beings that it starts to crack that facade and people actually start questioning it and you lead to like our generation who's just 
double birding the whole the whole way to hell. Yeah, I mean the you bring up like Vietnam the how the Pope, especially after World War II, was trying to like have this dialogue with the USSR. It was treating it as like a a colleague on the global um, chessboard mm-hmm. or whatever, and. Americans, like, especially at the top, they were like, okay, well, then Catholics are, like, communists because they're willing to talk with the communists. Um, and you get to all of these uh, presidents and religious and uh, political leaders using pro- uh, Protestantism and Christianity to drive their message. You finally get to JFK, who wins, and he didn't use religion as a driver because he did not want people to view him as bowing to USSR. Oh, but that was a big deal was him being a Catholic. That was like right, a right. huge campaign against him being president was you're just going to make the Pope president. You think JFK is going to do anything of his own volition? He's just going to the Pope's going to call him every day and tell him what to do. Yeah. <clears throat> so same with Biden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, putting all of those pieces together and then seeing afterwards, like Nixon, um, Nixon was raised a Quaker (laughs) and he had Henry Kissinger as his secretary of state, you know, Um, Quakers being uh, opposed to any sort of violence for, for, for those uninitiated. Um, So yeah, you, you know, it's the divorce between like it's it's such a at this point of Christianity's history feels so superficial of just a an accessory to people in power um yeah i suppose would be better to qualify it with it's it's just it's uh it's a you have to play the part you have to do all like the ritualistic stuff so people believe that you're into it because then you can use it on the back end to justify actions like all the shit that happens in Central and South America uh, as the start of the drug war, that's all justified by Christian morality as well. Yeah. Like, it's every, all of this stuff, the stuff that's happening at the border right now (laughs) of Texas is being justified by Christian morality. Um, So, it's, and people all over the place will gladly point out you know, oh, here's the gospel. You think Jesus would actually be putting kids in cages at the border? You think he'd actually be putting razor wire and saw blades across the Rio Grande? Uh, that that argument doesn't matter. It does not matter at all. Because the only thing that matters is what the people who are and feel like they're invested in the situation feel in their inside of themselves. And if a leader tells them that they're justified, and having this, then that ceases the conflict in their head of, hmm, this feels like I might be doing a bad thing to another human being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the, you know, understanding that those struggles caused people to, like, splinter off and um, get destroyed in early colonial America that now it's the struggle that people have to justify today um, mentally. It's like, it's, you know, it's one of those things like 
you can spin a top by just throwing it into a box. Eventually it'll spin. And it feels like in America, it reached a point where it's like, hey, this like moral quandary of living in this system and exploiting other people, but having this mental kind of moral gymnastics you have to do all the time. It worked eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, It worked this one time and it just kind of got run with. And now you can see, like, as you mentioned, our generation is much more trying to free from those things, I think, at least mentally. Um, it is. But it's much more of the platonic thing of information is the greatest disinfectant, you know? And we happen to grow up in an age where information became ubiquitous. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly, like the best way to put it is we could now reach all this information, but we have, we no longer have those communities because of the drive of capitalism, uh, in the fifties and everything stripping community from, from the nation. And then look, we had to, we had to build the interstate highway system. We had to, right. We had to be able to move tanks from coast to coast to defend ourselves. Like any, that's why, you know, that's why I like living where we live because it feels much more like a place where people actually do look out for each other, even though we're all individuals shuffling Mm -hmm. around on the sidewalk, it still feels like, you know, and, and that's, that's crazy to me that my view of community is you're not laying on the horn whenever I'm crossing the street because you want me to hurry up. You know, yeah. that's how far we've devolved. Well, and I guess my sense of community is still dependent on, you know, commerce. Like, I'm not, my sense of community isn't my neighbors. And it's certainly mm-hmm. not like yeah. my church congregation that I get with three times a week and we all share stories. Um, my sense of community is going with my friends and we go to the same breakfast spot once a week. And then we go, there's like a couple restaurants that are within walking distance where we go and like we know the other regulars there and we know the people that operate it and we're cool. Like my sense of community is around me getting together with friends and going and spending money places and then becoming friends with those people that I gave money to. And then me going and playing music at other places where I know the owners of those places and they're nice to me and so we're friends and then I know the regulars that go to those places it's not because we all like had to go, you know, hunt an antelope. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's so, still there you know, and it doesn't have to be a church in order to be able to get it. But you do have to interface with just the capitalist structure of, of, of the economy in order to do it. Yeah. Yeah. There's no other way really <laughs> nowadays. Um, yeah, you can't start giving free uh, meals to school children, or uh, the FBI comes. Oh, knocking. you'll get you'll get a, you'll get a lot of tickets for that. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I think getting to where we are today and understanding Christianity, um, I didn't realize required for me so much other knowledge of religion throughout human history, but going through all of it you can like for me i've been able to piece together 
all of those things in a way that totally makes sense for me, like why America operates the way it does Mm -hmm. um, without just having a surface level. Well, you know, there's this uh, these colonies and then revolution, all that kind of stuff. It actually has like a base for understanding those things. So I hope the entire series was. You know, I would love to know if we lost listeners because we're not doing science <laughs> for 15 weeks. I'll go back and look, look at the numbers. No, I had, I had, this was incredibly fun because like I had slivers of the knowledge that I had like really focused on at different points in my life, whether mm-hmm. it was like in high school or college or post-college and then other, all of the rest was just giant gaps. And so f- actually creating a thread that, connected those points that I knew, but then also gave me a totally uh, more comprehensive perspective on the things that I had learned when I was little, like the stuff that had been pounded into my head um, about my very Bayesian prior aspect of dealing with religion through my personal experience. Um, I have a better perspective on why that was so important for my my parents to try to get into my head like I, I get I get more now where they were coming from and more of the deterministic nature of why it was they were only going to be the people they were going to be and try to teach me the things they were going to teach me and they couldn't be anyone else like so you know you can be upset about different things that have happened but you also can't get a time machine and change it so you do have right. to kind of learn how to live with it, learn how to live with that. And then also understand that they had to learn how to live with the shit that happened to them. And it's not just a through line of all amazing, good James Dobson family, Christian stories going back to the beginning of Christ. It's not like that at all. It's just a big story of dysfunction and manipulation and people trying to hoard power over as many other human beings as they can. And, that's why you, as a kid, get real fucked up messages in your head about the way the world is supposed to work, and you got to fucking deprogram yourself. Yeah, seriously. I mean, anybody who struggled with like uh, religious conviction, despite what side of the coin you came out on, understanding the basis of like the capitalist system is what is causing turmoil more than likely um, takes a toll on the young mind that isn't already bought into the system, you know? Well, it's a lot easier to just keep, it's the back to Barbie and the matrix thing, (laughs) but like in Barbie, when they do the matrix parody part and she offers her like the two choices to go to the real world and like Mm -hmm. try to try to fix it or stay in Barbie land and all go back to the way it was. And she's just like, oh, yeah, let's just go back to the way it was. It was fine. <laughs> I think that is the base choice of almost everyone. And it was like the base choice for me for many times when I was confronted with the opportunity to have the choice. And I was like, yeah, I'm comfortable staying. I'm comfortable staying with what I know for a while longer. That's fine. I, You know, I like that you're giving me the opportunity to, to change lanes here, but kind of yeah might be a little uncomfortable to do i don't know i don't know i'll just i'll just keep doing it (laughs) yeah i mean i understand a lot of people's comfortability too comes from the 
notion of feeling uh, security from their family, like if things all fell apart. Mm. So it's a choice that's a difficult one to make uh, for sure. And especially when you're at different points of your life where, you know, like I, I can't imagine now being at all dependent on my family for anything like yeah like if we totally lost everything like i would rather not talk with them absolutely same with me again um but i can't imagine me having that thought process when i was like 20 oh for sure (laughs) you know like so you're you know that's why i held on to trying to speak with them uh up till like we moved to japan just because i was like well you know like we're like a young couple in houston like i don't know i'm not making much money and all that kind of stuff like i had no concept of if i lose everything i can like get roommates or something like that doesn't enter my head right right you know it's over i gotta move home yeah (laughs) these are the Um, only people who sometimes fed me (laughs) right but understanding that perspective too and feeling how close you are on the edge of precarity um i think for myself helped me understand how to try and treat people who are you know homeless or whatever Mm -hmm. in destitute situations much better um but i don't think that's the choice for a lot of people because you it's too icky to think about uh, you know, despite the original intentions of many religions being that of forming community to look out for each other right? and having the shared stories so that you can have uh, a base understanding of what the other person might be going through in a way that they can relay it to you. Mm-hmm. And then uh, circle it all the way back. It is just being in control of the information. Um, the, the whole point of the, the ideas of what pre-religions, like we talked about with Egyptians and going back, it was the tradition of being able to share all of the information, all of the knowledge that every Mm -hmm. single person of the tribe had acquired would be passed on to every other member. So all of the body of knowledge of all of the ancestors it was the job to figure out a way to communicate that so every person had all the knowledge. And when it became concealed and only certain people get to know the knowledge and you got to have special access to know the knowledge. And if I keep control of most of the knowledge, then I can tell fake knowledge to a bunch of people to get them to do things. That is the organization of religion, which was the withholding of information from as many people as possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it took a lo- it took a long time of human history to get back to a place where information became accessible to all people without it being gatekeeped by the people who held your salvation in in the balance. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's um it's like definitely a turning point nowadays, and I think it's a hopefully something to like reflect on. What does that mean for uh, the future of people? And then in what way can I as an individual try to bridge uh, to other individuals and form something 
as close to not exploitation <laughs> as possible. Right. It's tough, but I had a lot of fun doing it. Thanks for yep. doing all of the extra reading on the America stuff while my house was sweltering from the inside and I couldn't focus. No. <laughs> okay. You you brought us home. I don't know how much I contributed to the last two episodes, but I but but I I felt I tr- I tried to jump in there a little bit, but you were the one we were bringing 50, all the 50. information. <laughs> you just need to not cut your half out. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, I can't edit myself out cuz I don't like the sound of my voice. Yeah. I or I'm just going to start like doing some really cool pitch effects on my voice, make it sound like a robot. Yeah. <laughs> Get all daft punk with my voice. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. Until next week. Bye.